It's all so complex and complicated. It feels so ominous. Horsemen? Seals? The mark? How did the early church understand it all, anyways? I don't know what to focus on or watch for. It feels like everything could be a sign, especially these days. Are we living in the end times right now? Is it about the future? Or maybe it's already happened and I missed it. What's God trying to show us? How do we know what's real and what's made up by Hollywood? Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful. His plan and God's timing are perfect. And I know what matters most is that in the end, he wins. Jesus wins. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us today or maybe on a podcast later. I think we'd all say it has been an unbelievable uh, week we've experienced uh, as Canadians and as global citizens. Here in Canada, I know some of you who watch aren't from Canada, but in Canada, we've had a really difficult month and a half or so, and especially this week. Um, our country's deeply divided over protests and police and the use of unprecedented uh, legal powers in our country and politicians and people. We as a nation are just divided. We don't agree on this stuff, and it's really difficult. And then this week also, um, Russia invaded Ukraine, war in Europe, something I never thought I would be saying. Sounds like what my grandparents used to talk about. And of course, everyone's speculating about how bad it's going to be and how will it extend to the world and will it touch NATO and there's the economic and the political and the people and the... there's just so much going on. By the way, that's why we need to read the book of Revelation more, not less. See, the book of Revelation, one of the greatest gifts it gives every generation of Christians in good times, bad times, terrible times, and boring times is the needed counter image to what we're facing. See, in the last 24 hours, the last seven days, the last two years, our social media feeds have been filled with division, war, protest. It's just an onslaught of stuff. And, and we feel like we're drowning, actually, a lot of time, a lot of the times. And, and the book of Revelation, wildly enough, gives us counter images that we need to have hope. Don't forget who originally got this book. Remember, seven literal churches got this letter. They were struggling, persecuted, broken, real people living in a real mess in a really scary time. The world and the powers and the demonic darkness was too big and too overwhelming. And the dragon and the two beasts were not some weird image to debate about or ponder. They were living in them and under them. And yet now, and, and let me say this, it's not a mistake that we arrive in Revelation 14 on this time, in this time, on this week. Re Revelation 14 starts with a simple phrase. Then I looked. John himself was moved away from the beast of the sea and away from the beast of the earth and the terrifying dragon. And as he was moved and as we are moved, suddenly we realize they don't have the last word. 
Uh, the lamb has the last word. The church will be vindicated and there is reward coming. This is the deep, profound, beautiful counter image we need today, right now, in this moment. Revelation 14.1 reads like this, Then I looked and there before me was the lamb. Standing on Mount Zion, with and with him was 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It's so interesting in this pinnacle moment, Jesus' Jesus's ultimate victory moment, he's not seen as lion, he's seen as lamb. Weakness, gentleness, humility is where the greatest power in our movement is found, the opposite of the dragon and the, and the two beasts. And like we learned last summer, the, the lamb is one of the most important symbols we have, and it finds its roots, its beginning, before a beginning existed. The image shows us the heart of God. Remember last week in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. See, our salvation was a decision within God, within the inner life of the Trinity, before time itself, before the world was, before sin was, before the dragon was, before the two beasts were. The sacrifice was already in God. I love when one person wrote, no Trinity is conceivable without the Lamb, without the sacrifice of love, without the crucified Son, for He is the slaughtered Lamb glorified in eternity. All throughout holy history, the Lamb focuses our attention on God's mercy and God's love and God's power and God's control and God's vindication on our behalf. Remember God gave Abraham a son, Isaac, and then he told Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and then as he goes to do it, God provides a ram. God himself provides the surrogate, the substitute, the, the stand-in, the scapegoat. Something else takes the place of his son, and God still gets glory, and God is still worshipped, and sin is dealt with, and the relationship is kept intact. Remember, then there was the Passover moment in Egypt where a little lamb was slaughtered and death had to pass over God's people when it looked at the blood of the lamb. And later in the temple, every morning and every evening, do you remember, there's a sacrifice called a guilt offering or a sin offering. And so Jesus is our guilt offering. And then, of course, when Jesus at 30 started his ministry, his cousin John the Baptist says in John 1.29, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so now as we arrive at the end with this amazing counter image of the Lamb in ultimate power and victory, where is the self-giving, saving, victorious Lamb standing? On Mount Zion. Why does that matter? Because this, again, is all rooted in the promise that God is going to and is making all things right through Jesus. So much of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so much of the Gospels themselves and the book of Revelation find their fulfillment in one psalm. Psalm 2.1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one, saying, let's break off their chains and throw off their shackles. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion on my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, and today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. In other words, Jesus has won, is winning, will win. Jesus is over all the nations. Jesus is over all the demonic power and all the politics and all the military stuff. Nothing can move him. Nothing can push him. Nothing can scare him or overcome him. Nothing can stop him. 
and nothing can take away from what he's done for us. Let me read this again. Then I looked, counter image, therefore before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him was the 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. Because of the lamb, God now has his people. Who are his people? It's the church throughout every generation. The 144,000. It's not a literal 144,000. It's 12 times 12. That's a Jewish way of saying perfect, complete, and fulfilled. All that are supposed to be in it are in it. And the church, remember, replaces Israel in the full sense. I mean, Jesus' half-brother said it in James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. The church rooted uh, in Jesus, made up of Jews and non-Jews, is going to be fully complete. And we are marked by God the Father's name and God the Son's name on our foreheads. This is what we've learned time and time again through this series. This is the mark of the Lamb. We even talked about this last week. God has already sealed us in the middle of slaughter and chaos and question and good and bad and boring. And what is the seal placed on us between the first and second coming of Jesus? Oh, right, it's the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The mark is not a literal mark. It's not an RFID chip or a barcode or a tattoo. It's the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 1.22, he set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, I love this, guaranteeing what is to come. So here's the image. Jesus is above all political power and Jesus is above all military power and Jesus is above all religious power and all spiritual power and all human power and all demonic power. And then we who are part of his community, the Lamb's community, are marked by the Holy Spirit and this grand community and this church made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. It's multi-generational. It's even multi-dimensional. Actually, in this moment, then breaks out in worship. And in this grand praise moment, suddenly you start going, well, where are the beasts? And where's the dragon? Why? Because our attention is moved as we join the heavenly choir to the ultimate place that shows us what's going on. So I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and, and, and bef- before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed, notice this, from the earth. Now, I just want to remind you of this, be encouraged. They have been redeemed, past tense. It already has happened. You've already been set free if you're a Christian now. Jesus has forgiven you already now. You're already called by God the Father now. You're already saved when? Oh, right now. You're already set free now. You're already marked by the Lamb of God through his Spirit now. And, oh, here's the amazing thing. We are all redeemed Redemption is a churchy word, but it's so important. It means we've been liberated by someone else paying a price. It's the word ransom. It comes from slave markets where people would go in and buy relatives who had been captured in war or who were slaves and buy them back to come home. Oh, and notice, where have we been redeemed from? Oh, from the earth. Why does that matter? Because we learned last week, the beast of the earth imitates the Holy Spirit. No, we've been redeemed, bought out of the earth. Why? Because we're marked by 777, not 666. So we're moved from darkness to light already. 
uh, from guilty to not guilty already, convict to friend already, permanent bankruptcy spiritually to freedom, from slavery to liberty. And it's all done through the Lamb. So that's all upstairs. What a good needed counter image we all need this week. But that's upstairs. <coughs> and then we move back downstairs. But what do followers of the Lamb look like? What are the marks of the Lamb on us as we live during the time of beasts and tribulation and dragons? Well, it's always the opposite of the beasts and the opposite of the dragon. It reads like this in Revelation 14.4. Uh, These are those who did not defile themselves with women. They remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. The first characteristic of lamb followers are their virgins. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not saying that all Christians never have sex. And this is also not saying that all Christians are just men. This is saying that the church, which, by the way, the image is of a bride, has chosen to remain pure and not be involved in the sexual culture or the idolatries of the world. There's a self-sacrifice for the lamb because our love for that for him is greater than all our other loves, good, bad, or, or wrong. This is the idea that the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom, and we want to be fully dedicated to him alone. We're not willing to commit adultery on him. We're waiting for him. This is how Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 11.2. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Another person just said it like this. The redeemed know that they belong to one husband. And they don't want to be caught sleeping with another lover. They don't want to be caught in bed with the world. They want to be a faithful lover to the lover of their souls. So because God's done all this incredible stuff in us and around us and through us, and we're marked by him, we want to love him back. Also, the second characteristic is those who belong to the Lamb go where he wants us to. In other words, the church, those people who are marked by the Lamb, love his word. The church follows him in his views, his life, and his loves. What Jesus hates, we're called to hate. What Jesus loves, we're called to love. And and more than just, I, I love the scripture and I want to obey him and follow him in a general sense. Also in a very pragmatic sense, in our time, if he asks us to move, we move. If he asks us to suffer, we suffer. If he asks us to stay somewhere, we stay. We go where the lamb wants us to go. But there's more. Those who belong to the Lamb and are Lamb followers, it says in verse 4, they were purchased from among humanity and they were offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth and they are blameless. So the third characteristic of Lamb followers between the first and second coming of Jesus is we are people of truth and we hate lying. In a post-truth culture and wherever there's misinformation everywhere, this matters so much. Remember the dragon is the opposite of truth. Remember John 8, 44? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and he's the father of all lies. But then we need to stop and say, but what is a lie? All the way back in our Ten Commandments series, a few years ago, we worked this out. See, lies take on many forms. Outright untruth, insincerity, being deceitful, exaggeration, half-truth, misleading, not including all the facts, or even silence. David Siemens in his book, God's Blueprint for Living, said there's three ways this works. We tell lies, we spread lies, and we live lies. Telling lies is just, again, when we don't tell the truth. What's so striking, by the way, about this is when God talks about what he hates, this is one of them. 
Uh, Proverbs 6.16, there are six things God hates, seven that are detestable to him, haunty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up dissension among brothers or sisters. We're called to be lamb followers. We are called not to lie in any form. Second, we're not supposed to spread lies. Much of the time we use gossip or slander or not standing up against untruth when spoken publicly, or we affirm untruth with silence or words or body language. As one wrote, a silent shrug, a quiet nod, which gives the impression of agreement, that insidious question, that implication, that insincere praise. And then the third version of lying, of course, is you live a lie. In other words, you act one way in one environment, but another way in another environment. Uh, you good on Sunday is the old way of saying it, but Monday through Saturday, not so much. In other words, we as Lamb followers are consistently trying through the power of the Holy Spirit to be people of truth against these three things. Paul put it like this in Colossians 3.9, don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Uh, the last... Uh, sort of marker of lamb followers is they are blameless. Now, I read that this week and I was like, I don't know. I mean, that's such a consuming overall statement. I don't fit the bill. Have you seen my life in the last 24 hours? What about your life? I only thought Jesus was blameless. Yep, that's actually the point. This is a positional statement. Through the lamb's work, through the lamb's life, through the lamb's death, through the Lamb's resurrection, through the Lamb's ascension, He makes us blameless. Such good news. Okay, so we've got a really strong, beautiful picture of an amazing worship moment and the Lamb of God in total victory and who we are already positioning and how we're called to live in these really difficult times. And then the scene changes. We're moved by the Holy Spirit from dragons and beasts to the Lamb and then people singing in freedom but then, it's like the implication of the whole letter of Revelation comes into sharp focus. Like we keep seeing week after week, in God's view, there's actually only two community of humans. There's only two cities, two groups, those who belong to the Lamb and those who belong to the dragon and the two beasts. Two seals, two cities, two kingdoms. One will last eternally, one will be destroyed. And, and here's where it gets uncomfortable and hopeful. The bridge from one community to the other Put it like this, the passport you need from one city to another, the door from one to the other, is only found in one place. In other words, there's only one key that moves you. It's the Christian gospel. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. I want you to notice this today. The good news is eternal. It's what actually lasts. It's never going to fade or be overcome. And not only that, the gospel, notice, is for all people. It's hope-giving, life-giving, sin-canceling, Satan-breaking, death-defeating, worship-directing, reconciling, God-honoring, and it's human-humbling and human-healing. What can wash away my sin? The old hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why as Christians we hold and we know 
because we've experienced Jesus, that what Jesus claims about himself is true. I'm the way, and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to God, the Father, except through me. Peter preached this in one of the very first Christian sermons in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. He's the only one that has dealt with our sin because he's without sin. Think about this. He's the only one that has never worshipped the dragon, directly or indirectly. He's the only one that's never given into, related to, relied upon either of the beasts. We all have. He never did. He's the only one that's overcome death. He's actually the only one that's come back from the other side to tell us actually what's there. He's the only one that has the power and the ability and the holiness and love to deal with our rescue. He's the only one that's overcome all of our enemies, even our own selfish inclinations, And he's the only one who's going to make everything right. I mean, this is amazing good news. We're rescued by Jesus, in Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. It's grace alone, faith alone, trust alone, through the person and work of Jesus alone. But if you don't embrace the gospel of the Lamb, then you're left with the beast. And you're left with the dragon. In other words, this is how it plays out. If you don't embrace the work of Jesus, then then you have to trust in self or trust in political power, or you have to trust in military power, or you have to trust in religion, or you have to trust in your education, or you have to trust in your looks, or you have to trust in sexuality, or you have to trust in, I don't know, psychology, or money, or achievement, or spirituality. Ultimately, good, bad, neutral, or evil, if you trust in anyone, or anything, or any idea, or any thought, or any movement, or any person other than the Lamb, you're left with you. And that leads to judgment and eternal loss, because all those things replace God, who is worthy. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening, uh, maddening wine of her adulteries. We'll talk about that next week. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead and on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. Which has, been poured, which has been poured full strength into a cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with a burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise up forever and ever. There'll be no rest uh, or, or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Oh. Now, to get this, you need to remember last week. This is what we've learned already. If you don't accept God's seal, if you're not marked by the work of the Lamb, if you're not sealed by the Holy Spirit, 777, if you don't have the work of Jesus on your life, then you're still just in your sin and you're stuck with you. And if you don't have the mark of God, then you already have the other mark already from the other city, from the other community, from the false Holy Spirit. So here's the light bulb moment again. You're either owned by the dragon or Jesus now. You either belong to the beast or the Lamb of God now. You right now either have the mark of the lamb or the mark of the beast now. And like we learned in our last series, when people become Christians, they switch allegiances and one mark leaves and the other one shows up. In other words, you don't have to have 666, false religion and self-trust mark your life when the Holy Spirit is so much better. But in the end, if you don't embrace the gospel of the lamb, you will be eternally lost. Now, the image above feels incredibly Un-Canadian. <laughs> it's graphic, it's overcoming, it's shocking, but everyone, it's just real. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. 
Here's what Jesus said himself in Mark 9, 48. Hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, some think fire represents just absolute loss. Others say, no, the fire is actually real. Others teach, well, it can't be real fire because Satan and the demonic are throwing there, so it can't be physical. Others say the lake of fire, which this is talking about, is where death and Satan and others are destroyed forever. They just cease to exist. They're annihilated. Well, wherever you land in all of this, let's just agree on this. It's bad. It's bad. It's real. And there's an eternal consequence to it. The point is, judgment is actually really coming. And it will be a fixed and permanent reality. In other words, the divide is forever. So that means there's only two destinies, just like there's only two communities and two cities. In other words, uh, there's two marks that either lead you to the lake of fire or the new heavens and the new earth. It says in Revelation 14, 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Now, we don't have time. If you read the rest of Revelation 14, you actually have a full glimpse of the end. Jesus returns. He's going to judge everyone who's ever lived. He's the king with the golden crown. All humans will face him and give an account. And the image is used of like a great harvesting taking place. And there's only two things harvested. There's, there's grain and grapes, which is another way of Jesus talking about what he did in Matthew 26, where he says there's just sheep and there goats. Okay. The scripture is clear today that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're redeemed already. And you're marked by the Lamb already. And actually, what's really beautiful at the end is there is a promise here of coming rest and blessing and vindication and reward. But we're all sitting here in the time of dragons and beasts. So again, what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us between the first and second coming? One, and this is really important as you're watching your news feed, probably while I'm preaching. Keep your eye on the Lamb and keep rooting your identity in Him. Keep saying to yourself, the Lamb wins. And you already are redeemed and you already are positionally blameless and you're set free and the new heavens and the new earth are, are real. And there is a worship moment coming where when it happens, all the troubles of the world will genuinely be done. Keep your eye on the Lamb and keep remembering as you are swimming in news feeds that are so discouraging that actually Jesus' view of you and history is what matters the most. Number two, we are called, here it is again, to patient endurance, to keep God's command and remain faithful to Jesus. I think what's been so discouraging for lots of you that have church history is you've realized that the book of Revelation is just too honest. We all thought it was later and someone else is going to go through all this terrible time and we just get zapped out. Nope. The book of Revelation is really disconcerting for us because we're like, oh man, I don't get out. That's right. Ah, But it's also hopeful because it's telling us the truth so we can persevere well. As we live between the first and second coming of Jesus, 
This is what we are continually being called to do in the power of the Holy Spirit in community. Number one, be a willing virgin in the sense of be willing to be exclusively given to Jesus. And all our other loves, whether they're good loves or neutral loves or they're called sin, actually have to bow to Jesus. In other words, be exclusively committed to Jesus and him alone. Be willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes. This is going to be incredibly important in the next 20 years of the church. There has to be just a genuine love of God's word and a submission to it. If the lamb says it's wrong, I'll struggle, but it's wrong. If the lamb says it's right, I'm going to struggle, but I'm going to agree that it's right. There just has to be this moment where we go, you know what? I'm so exclusively devoted to Jesus, I trust his word. And some of you just need to say out loud, Jesus, I will follow your word, whether I like it or not. Deeper than just that, there also has to be just this willingness to obey him situationally. If, if the Lamb's Spirit, if the Holy Spirit prompts you to go or stay, or you just have to say, I'm going to follow the Lamb. You know, remember Peter, James, and John in the Gospels? Just before the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they saw more in that moment than any Orthodox Jew had ever seen in their life. They had no clue that was going to happen. They just followed him up a mountain because it was another thing with another day. That's the position. The position of the church has to be, in the best of times and the worst of times, I will follow the Lamb. We have to be people of truth. Don't lie. Don't give oxygen to lies. And don't live a double life. Hiddenness is where all the stuff goes sideways. Maybe you just need to pray about all that stuff. Maybe you need to say, wow, I'm not exclusively given to Jesus. Or maybe you need to say, I'm not really willing to follow the Lamb by His word or by His promptings. Or, or maybe dealing with light. Maybe that's the takeaway for you this week. Just be, take what's happened upstairs and bring it downstairs and walk in it. For others of us, actually, this conversation about judgment is what God wants to talk about. And some of you need to struggle and submit We talked about this a few years ago in that series we did on eternity. Remember, judgment, heaven, and hell? As Christians, we just have to come to grips with and submit to the reality of what's actually coming. One poignantly poignantly wrote this a long time ago. Hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that as heaven will be better than we could dream of, hell will be worse than we can conceive. For as Christians, for Christians, we just need to accept the plain teaching of Scripture. Judgment's real, the marks are real, and the implications are real. One of the most helpful verses, group of verses on this for us, is Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. So let's leave kindergarten. And let's grow up into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death or faith in God or instruction about baptism or laying of hands or the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. One of the main reasons why the church is so weak right now is not moving to deeper things and seeing greater impact is because many, 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 many Christians don't actually truly embrace and believe the kindergarten teachings about faith. We still are debating and wondering and looking at the foundation. And if you keep looking at the foundation, you you just can't keep moving. And one of the foundational teachings in the New Testament 
is not just, oh, the resurrection of the dead and new life, which is amazing. It's also eternal judgment. So maybe some or a lot of us need to go, you know what, God? It makes me really uncomfortable, but I need to submit and know this is true. Because right when you begin to truly believe this is real, it changes how you act, how you live, and what you value. Now, I know lots of you are hanging out with us again. Uh, you're, maybe this is your first time in a church community or you're connecting online or maybe someone sent you a link. And again, you might call yourself a skeptic or a seeker. You might be a deeply religious person from another faith. You might be mindful or spiritual or wouldn't designate yourself as anything. Here's the question to you. Who do you want to lead you in this life? And where do you want to spend eternity? I mean, just look at the world. How's it working for you? Really? Who do you want to lead you in this life, and where do you want to spend eternity? Jesus again and again and again said, if you want to get life, you need to give up your own. So I'm just going to read these verses to you. And this is the heart of the movement. This is everything that Christianity is about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus, the lamb, will not die but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus, not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. C.S. Lewis, that famous atheist turned Christian, who wrote Narnia and all sorts of other stuff we know about, brilliantly just said this, God loves, us too uh, God loves us too much to want us to wind up in any sort of hell, present or eternal. And God loves us too much to cram heaven down our throats. The invitation for you is to put your trust in Jesus, who loves you with a love you've never experienced. In other words, the invitation is for you to turn from a life without him and admit that sin is sin and actually ask Jesus to forgive you and ask for eternal life and actually reject self-sufficiency or reject religion or reject spirituality, whatever you trust in and actually find the reality that someone outside has to do the work for you to be okay. God invites you to have eternal life. Why is this passage important? Well, a lot of reasons. Number one, it gives us the counter-image we all need. It also reminds us that we're called to be very different during this time of the dragon and beasts. It forces us to wrestle with the coming judgment. It should lead us to great worship and praise from what we've been saved from. And it invites others to embrace Jesus. So during this very difficult weak, uh, politically, uh, militarily, socio-economically, as the world seems to be unraveling. Let's just do this for a second. Thanks, Jesus, that you're the Lamb of God, that you've been established on Mount Zion, and nothing is going to get by you, and you have the final say. I pray among our church here at Sanctus and those who are Christians watching from other communities here and around the world, I pray this. Would you again remind us of, of your winning? Help us to root our identity deeply in you. Uh, some of us, Lord, need to uh, talk to you this week about lying or double lives. 
or, or some of others of us need to talk about exclusive loyalty to you. Uh, others of us maybe need to wrestle down with you the coming judgment, but help us to be willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And Holy Spirit, would you work that out? I pray for hope and joy and peace and change in our church out of this passage. And lastly, some of us just need to say, Jesus, I've trusted in so many other things other than you. So right now, I want to become a follower of the Lamb. I want to be marked by you. I want eternal life. I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to end up in any form of hell. I actually want to spend eternity with you. So forgive me of my sin, my self-trust, whatever it is that I've done. Forgive me. I want relationship with the Father through you. I want the Holy Spirit to walk into my life and seal me. And I want to be led so well by you. I say yes to you. I become a follower of Jesus today. A follower of the Lamb today. Forgive me of my sins. God, you know where every one of us are at. Seeker, skeptic, new Christian, long-term Christian. Take this passage this week and bring life and hope and healing and life change. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.